Good morning, Bay. It's great to see you. Thanks for being with us this weekend. I want to say welcome to the Mobile campus, and uh, we're glad you're part of our service this weekend. You know what? I want Mobile and Malbus. I want us to give a shout out to everybody online. We everywhere I go, even out of this country, people are saying my family's watching, they're watching. There, we have a lot of folks connected to us on our campus online. Can we just give a big shout out to these guys? Come on, Mobile. Well, it's good to see you, and I want to say that uh, our big launch day in Honduras was very successful last Sunday. Our service is there at four in the afternoon. It just works better in that culture, and uh, it was just a phenomenal time. Uh, the facilities that we have leased are uh, just really some of the best in the city. In fact, the other day, as they were rehearsing for the night of worship, the president was in the room next door, so they had to keep the worship down, not to disturb him. So. You know, God kind of put us there with presidents and kings and things. So I thought that was really neat. All the way to Honduras. And uh, yeah. So thank you for your prayers and your giving for this. We'll keep you up to date uh, with Honduras and what's going on. And actually have a group of guys going over next week to put in an aquaponics system there at one of the schools that we support with the gammons, and so we'll, we'll have a team going over. We'll give you some reports on that when they get back. If you have your device, your Bible, you can turn to John 4 and 1 Samuel 5. John 4, 1 Samuel 5. I want to show you something in the New Testament. I want to show you something in the Old Testament. In this series, this is the third part of Destined to Worship, and the first message uh, ended by saying powerful things happen when we worship. Uh, last weekend, the message, the bottom line was why worship, and it's because God is worthy of our worship. Uh, this weekend, I want to talk about worshiping God brings victory to areas of our life, that worship can bring victory. Um, so in my showing you the Old Testament, the New Testament, these two stories, I'm going to go in depth on each story, uh, we're going to look at an element of our Christian heritage that's very important to us. And, and it may be something that maybe you're not even familiar with, but our Christian heritage is victory. God didn't save us to be defeated and to be worn out and whipped and worn down. He created a system when we become believers where we can walk in victory. Uh, and the way to victory is through worship. Every one of us have things in our lives that we have to overcome. We have challenges. They, they present themselves you probably have something right now that you're going through and you're fighting for victory right now. If you understand worship and how it plays into our lives and it transforms our lives, it will totally change the way you see God, how you interact with God. Worship is the key to us gaining victory in those areas of our lives. And when I say worship, I'm not talking about what we just did necessarily. Uh, that is a form of worship and in singing and clapping and the things we did. Certainly we have worship, but uh, worship is actually much broader. And worship is actually the attitude of our heart that is demonstrated in outward forms. Uh, it's something we have inside of us. So when we come and we worship God, it, it builds up and it, it starts within us and our affections and our gratitudes. It swells up and then it's demonstrated through us. It can be in singing or clapping your hands or lifting your hands. It is really even in giving. 
giving is an act of worship. If you notice at Bay, we don't pass plates or offering bags. We have boxes in our commons because worship is an act of giving. And, and what, what I want you to understand is that's between you and God. It's cl- you bringing tithe and offerings to him is an act of your worship. And, and so we, we've been that way for a long time doing that. And, and, but not only that, but even in serving is an act of worship. When you're serving another person, when you get involved in servolutions, projects, and things that we do, that's another act of, wor- of worship. So the ways of worship God are limitless. Now, in this story in John 4, it's a story we're all familiar with, but what's so interesting about this story is that Jesus is going to give us insight into worship that we haven't had before. It's the story of the woman at the well, and Jesus and his disciples are traveling. They're hungry. They go get food. Jesus stays at this well, and uh, this woman comes in the middle of the day. We, we call her the Samaritan woman. We, we don't know her first name or last name. It's the Samaritan woman. She begins to draw water out of the well. And Jesus sees her and he knows, being the Son of God, he knows there are things in her life that are pulling her down. He knows that she is being defeated in areas of her life. There's no victory there. And so he starts talking to her and he says, lady, can, can I have a drink of water? And she says, are you a Jew? And yes, well, see, Jews even talking to a Samaritan was very unusual. So I'm sure at first she's a little leery of who is this guy? He's a Jew. He's talking to me. They begin to talk about water and living water and water welling up inside of us. And, and then Jesus gives her a prophetic word because he says to her, go, go call your husband. And she said, I, I don't have a husband. And he said, well, that's right. You've had five and the one you're with now you're living with, you're not married to. Well, this just blows her away. She realizes this is a prophet talking to her. And, and, and so he, Jesus, what he's doing when he recognizes, he, he goes immediately and opens the door of pain and grief in this woman's life. The reason she's at the well in the middle of the day is because of rejection. She's been rejected. She has shame in her life. The other women come out early in the morning before it's hot. She's not going there. She doesn't want to face them. So she waits to the heart part of the day and goes in shame. She is at this well. She is having an encounter with Jesus. What I love about this woman is that she really represents each of us because each of us in our lives have been in a place where we feel like her, a place where we feel overwhelmed by our circumstances. And it's like we're constantly losing and life is unfair and and, and we're just in a place of constantly being defeated. This is where she is. Here's how I know that. Because she had five husbands. In that culture, in that day, a woman could not divorce a man. Only the man could divorce the woman. So five men have divorced her and rejected her. She's living with another man. This is what it tells me. It tells me that her family has rejected her because of her divorce and will not let her go back home and live with her family. So she's living with this guy. So here she is with all of this rejection and all this pain. And then she has an encounter with this Jew, Jesus, and he's asking her questions and sharing things with her. He tells her the prophecy, which unlocks the door to her pain and her rejection. And, and, and here's her response. As soon as he opens her door to that pain and rejection, because he knows what's going on in her heart, her, her response, she immediately starts asking Jesus about worship. She turns the conversation to worship. So let me pick up in verse 19. The woman said to him, this is after he prophesied and, and kind of read her mail. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain 
nor I in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Notice that phrase. The Father is seeking. Verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This is what Jesus gives us. He uses a word for worship. It's in the Greek, it's a different word. There are words in the, in, in the Hebrew for worship. There are words in the, in the Greek. But he uses a new word for us. And it's to give us this clear idea of what he's talking about with this woman and what worship is. He, he, this word in the Greek means to kiss or to throw kisses toward. To throw kisses toward. So when she's talking about worship, she's saying to him, I want to lavish my affections. I feel love from you because you've opened the door and I feel this sense from Jesus that I want to go lavish my affection on God. Where do I do that? But then she says, well, you know, Samaritans, we do it on this mountain and you Jews, you do it in a temple on another mountain. So where do we go worship? And Jesus, his reply is, hey, there's a time coming and now is where true worshipers will throw their affection on God in spirit and truth. So here's what she's asking. She's asking a geographic question. Well, do we worship here on this mountain? She points to it. Or do we go to Jerusalem and worship there? She wants a geographic place. She wants a form. Jesus gives her a spiritual answer. He's saying, look, the place is spirit and truth. It's where in your spirit you pour out your love and spirit and you worship your father and you turn his heart because of your adoration toward him. You see, the love we have inside of us, it has to be expressed outward to him. And it can take place anywhere. You can be at work in your office and something happens in the business world in your office and you just say, Lord, thank you for making that happen. Thank you for that happening. You're so good. To me. You've just worshiped. You can be driving across the bayway and the sun's coming up or the sun's going down and you look at that and you say, Lord, that is beautiful. Thank you for the beauty and the nature. You're worshiping God. You can be in, in the woods hunting and, and you're not being very successful. So you look at the nature and you start giving thanks to God and then you say, please send a deer by or something. And you, please, you know, thank you for the beauty in this tree that I'm in and all of this stuff. You know, and you're worshiping God. It can happen in any place where we just express our love and adoration. But here's what I think. I think many believers, I I really believe the majority of believers struggle walking in victory. And here's why. Because we have adoration from God, but we don't express it. And and, and as people, believers, we, we, we have adoration, but it's not our nature. We are relatively conservative when it comes to outwardly expressing our love for someone. And so if, if we don't learn to do this, then we can't gain victory. When we do this and we're expressing this, the love of God, it's what's in our hearts, then, then, then all of a sudden we start walking in victory. In this message, I want to show you four truths to gaining victory because I think all of us could use victory one day, sometime, or right now. So here's the first point. Worship attracts the manifest presence of God. Worship attracts the manifest presence of God. Jesus said in John 4, 23, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, but the Father is seeking such to worship him. In other words, here's what he's saying. They're the the kind of worshipers the Father's looking for. 
He's look, here's the image that he gave. The Father is in heaven on the throne. He's looking over at the earth, and he's seeking. It's the same word that he used when he's talked to the disciples. He said, ask, seek, and not. It's that same word. He's looking for those kind of worshipers. What kind of worshipers? Those that are expressing their love and adoration every day. Not, not waiting for the, the weekend to go in and, 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 and do worship in a, in a service, but it's just part of their life, and, and they're expressing it. And, and so you, you're thinking, well, why, why in the world is God himself you know, seeking worshipers? From a human perspective, you would think, okay, well, I guess he wants us to you know, love him and express it to him, and, 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 and yeah, that's it, but that's not what he's looking for. You, you see, he, he doesn't need our affection because he's God. He doesn't need our affection. He's actually seeking worshipers for another reason. Here's why he's seeking worshipers. When we're worshiping God, it puts him in a place to come to us and show up. How does he show up? He comes with his presence. Now, the, the word for worship we just, that Jesus used here is to throw kisses toward or, or to kiss someone and, and so you you can't kiss someone who's far away and so you, you you kiss someone that's close they're right there they're tangible so when the samaritan woman's asking for a place to worship jesus said that place is in spirit and truth that's your personal place and he's saying the kiss of god then as you begin to worship him he comes back and you and he begins to he begins to show up his manifest presence shows up and when he does there's an exchange taking place He's looking for a worshiper who's truly thankful and a heart of gratitude and gives them thanks for, for everything's going on in the night. They just live in this mindset of expressing it. He can show up. He makes an exchange. So we throw love on him, and, he, and, and we can kiss him, but he comes back, and he, 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 he comes and, and connects to us and touches us through his presence. So he seeks worshipers because that, in that place he can come and interact with us in love and make an exchange. You see, he doesn't need our adoration because he's God, but he knows that we need to make an exchange. I'm, I'm going to talk about that in the worship service, uh, the night of worship on Sunday evening. I'm going to talk about that, what that exchange looks like. But, but he knows we need to make that exchange. And so that's why he wants to come. So the ideal of the presence of God, where did that come from? Well, it started with, it started with Moses in Exodus 33. Moses said, I, I pray that if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your spirit. Consider that this nation is your people. Here's what God said about that. My presence, here's where it first comes in scripture, this whole ideal of his presence. My presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. The Hebrew word for presence literally means the face of something. Now, you, you understand, just like our face is the image of our personal presence. You may not recognize someone from their back walking away, but when you see their face, that's the recognition of their personal presence. But you see, in knowing someone, when you not only know them, uh, their name, but you know their face, and, and you, you see that personal presence, you begin to realize their nature from their face, yeah, their expressions, their mannerisms, and even types of their personality. So as we begin to worship him, just like Moses did in the Old Testament, we can have this talk with him, and, and the same thing can happen for us when we worship him his 
presence shows up. The face of his presence shows up. What do we see in that? We see his expression. We see his mannerisms. We see his love. We feel his compassion. We sense all of these things because he's looking for a place to come and interact with us on this earth. Now, there's a difference. You've heard of the omnipresence of God. That's God's everywhere. And then there's the attentive presence of God. Scripture says, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there. That's what's happening here this weekend. There are more than two of us. We're here. We've gathered in his name. We've worshiped him. And so his attentive presence is here. It's in the room. It's, It's with us. But then there's the manifest presence of God. So when I worship, that draws his face, and I can connect, and I can connect to his love and his grace and his mercy and his mannerisms and his personality, and I feel so connected to him and then it's in that connection that he's going to make an exchange now here's the second point of the message god manifest presence changes the atmosphere his manifest presence changes the atmosphere because of the way he interacts with us it changes the atmosphere let me say this your enemy is not flesh and blood your enemy is a spirit the scriptures give us a list of spirits the enemy he he satan himself but there are spirits there are about 14 not it's not all inclusive, but there are 14 spirits. And then there are, uh, there, there, there are nine people groups that have a spirit on them. So there are all these spirits. Those spirits are, are our enemies. So when I talk about this, I'm not saying your enemy is your neighbor or your mother-in-law or the guy sitting, you're, you're sitting by right now. That's not it. It's a spirit. Now, here's what happens. In the book of Acts, the people are arguing. All the leaders in the church are arguing. Well, to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first or this and this and this. And so they're doing all this arguing. And James steps up. He's like the overseer of the church. And in Acts 15, 15, here's what he says. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Now, he's going to quote a prophet. The prophet's name is Amos. Here's what he says. And this I will ret- after this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. That's the tent of David. David had a tent. Tell you about it in a minute. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord God who does all these things. The tent of David is the key to our life as Gentiles in the way we interact with God. David's tent was very unique in Jewish history. Now, we know Moses built a tabernacle. He built a tent. He, and he built the ark that goes inside of the tent that represents the manifest presence of God. They put the ark in that tent, and they, God created a form of worship through the sacrifices, and this is what the children of Israel were doing. So David comes along to be king, and he wants a permanent place for God, and it's going to be called the Temple of Solomon. But David can't build it, build it but his son's going to build it. So the tabernacle of Moses is out of the picture. The, tent, the Temple of Solomon hasn't been built. So there's a time frame here of 70 to 100 years where that place doesn't exist. And David says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build this tents for the presence of God. So between the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, during this period, the, t- the ark didn't sit in a, in a temple or the tent of Moses. It was sitting in another tent. It's like an open air tent. And, and, and it was wide open. Anybody walking by the road, they could see it. They could see the ark in the presence of God. So that's how it's opened up to us as Gentiles. Now, let me tell you this story. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to give you a whole lot of story but to connect to this. So I want you to get this. In 1 Samuel 4 is where the story starts. 
here's what's happened. You, you remember Israel's been in slavery for 430 years to Egypt. They're set free. They get into the wilderness. God gives Moses the pattern for the tabernacle and how to build the ark so his presence could come. And you know during that 40 years, they, they take it down and they move it. Wherever the cloud goes by day and the fire by night, and they move the presence and they set the tent up and it's portable and they move it and the ark is always in that. Well, for 40-something years and, and, and then after that, Joshua takes the children of that generation that died in the wilderness and he takes that tent and he goes into the promised land. He goes into Canaan land and he takes that tent and he builds it in a place called Shiloh. Shiloh means rest in peace. So he builds it and it stays there. It's not moving around anymore. The ark is there. And so all, all, all of this is, is taking place. For the next 350 years, Israel slowly gets into a place of, of what we call a backslidden condition. The nation is into idolatry. They're very immoral. The spiritual condition of the nation is represented by the spiritual condition of the priesthood. And, and the Bible says that there's a period of time where there's no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you try to do what's right in your own eyes, you usually get in trouble, okay? You need God. You need, the, you need God's word and his purpose showing you what to do. So here's people with no king doing what's right in their own eyes. So what is going on? Well, there's only the priesthood, and the priesthood is corrupt. There's a guy named Eli, and he has two sons, and they're corrupt immorally. Uh, they're robbing and cheating and immorally, sexually, all this stuff. They're perverts, you know? And, and, and so here they are in Shiloh over God's house. And the Bible says that his house, that Eli's house was unpardonable. And so we see the fulfillment in 1 Samuel 4 of the prophetic word of judgment that comes on Eli and the people of Israel. God's judgment is coming on them. And one of the most momentous events in the history of Israel takes place. And here's what happened. Israel lost its affection for worship. They went through a form they just would go through the form on the right day and show up and go home. They did not worship. They did not touch and know God. And they kept the golden calf worship going on. So they're trying to worship God and they have idolatry. They're trying to worship God. This is what's going on. And, and so they're in a horrible condition. Israel decides we're going to fight the Philistines. Why the Philistines? They're God's number one enemy all through the scripture. So we're going to fight them. And they go and fight. And on the first day of battle, it's bad. They lose, Israelites lose 4,000 soldiers. So the priests who are corrupt and his sons who are corrupt, they say, well, we did something wrong. Maybe we need to take the ark with us into battle. Here's what had happened. These people, their faith in God had degenerated into superstitious belief in the material Ark of the Covenant and not in the God who dwelt on the Ark. They were looking at the materialistic thing. Well, if we take, the, we take this physical ark. Now, they, they took the physical ark. They didn't take the presence of God. So the sons decided, okay, we're going to take this into battle. They just went against God's commandment. And, and, and they, they didn't go into battle. They went into their funeral. And, and so it's, it's taken out of the tabernacle. They, they brought it. And when they took it out, the Israelites, they shout, there goes the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines heard them shout. And the Philistines had heard rumors that, hey, they're bringing the Ark. And the Philistines were afraid. But their shout was a great shout. But it was an empty shout. Why? Because God was not in it. And the battle continued. So Israel, in the next week, they lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And then the next week, they lost 34,000 soldiers. And the worst is yet to come because here's what happened the enemy the philistines captured the ark the hand of the enemy has never touched the ark of the covenant in, in, in 400 years never and, and and but it was the fulfillment of god's word god's word prophesied it in first samuel 132 god said and the enemy will be in god's habitation 
The ark represents the presence of God. So they take the presence of God, the enemy does. As they capture the ark, they kill the two priestly sons. One of the soldiers, uh, and, and they had violated the commandment of the God. One of the soldiers runs back to Shiloh. And he tells the people, and the people cry out with anguish. And Eli is sitting over by the house of the God on the post, and he hears the cry, and he knows what's happened because he knows his sons are corrupt and what they've done, and he never corrected them. He never stood up what was right. And so the soldier finally gets to Eli, and he tells him what's happened. Eli is old and poor health. His eyes are dim. When he tells him the news, in shock, he, he fell off his post. He was seated on, and he fell backwards, and he broke his neck, and he died. And some say, well, he had a heart attack. I don't think he had a heart attack. I think that would have been too kind. I think he fell over and broke his neck and he suffered till he died. Corrupted the whole thing. Now watch. Let, let, let me flip it now. Let me show you the spiritual implications of that. Spiritually, the eyes of the nation were dim. They, they couldn't see spiritually. The nation had fallen back into idolatry. They were stiff-necked toward the things of God. They wouldn't do what God said. They weren't going to honor God. They weren't going to do those things. And the worst tragedy to that date happened. The ark is stolen. But now, I said all that to get to right here. Watch what happens. 1 Samuel 5, verse 1. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod's a city. It's like their capital city. And then they're going to take it into their big temple. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. That's their fish god. A head like a man, hands like man, a fish, a, a fish torso. And, and so they put God's covenant right, ark of covenant right there. And, 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 and so uh, when, when the people, verse 3, when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon falling on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. It, it bowed down to the ark of the Lord. And verse 4, so they arose, they, they set it back up. And then the next day they go in and Dagon's falling on its face to the ground. And this time the head of Dagon's broken off and both the palms of the hands were broken off on the threshold and only Dagon's torso was left. Here's what the enemy did. Watch. The enemy has the ark of God. It has the manifest presence of God. They get tired of this because everywhere it goes, it creates havoc in the enemy's town. In its temple, it tears down its favorite God. It sends it to, they send it to another city and bulls break out and this plague breaks out. And that, they said, we don't want anything. We're sending this. They end up sending it back to a man's house in Israel. The whole time the ark was in the enemy's camp, it brought havoc on the enemy. Listen, when the presence of God comes in to the presence of the enemy, the enemy has to yield and surrender to the presence of God. The reason we miss the victory is we don't understand that we're fighting a spiritual battle. And to fight a spiritual battle, you have to do it in the spirit. And you defeat a spirit with an opposite spirit. So when the presence of God shows up, when the enemy of our lives attacks us through, through our marriage or our finances or relationships, whatever he's doing, if the presence of God is with me, then the enemy that is attacking me, he is going to have to yield and surrender to the presence of God. What does that do? That changes changes the atmosphere of my situation. Are y'all breathing? It changes the atmosphere. What do we try to do? We try to take care of things in the natural. We try to fix all these things in the natural. And that's why the majority of believers, I think, are not walking in victory. Because we don't understand how to walk in victory. And the key to walking in victory is the manifest presence of God living in this temple. So when the enemy comes up, I, it's going, that presence is going to have to bow down. And it's going to wreak havoc in its plans and its strategies against me 
and my house and my family and my finances. So where in your life do you need victory? Where in your life is the enemy bothering you, just annoying you? That's the enemy. You, don't, you, don't have, you, you can walk in victory. It's, it's, it's the enemy. And, and, and we get the mindset, well, you know, uh, poor, poor, pitiful me or this and that and the other. No, it's the enemy. And God is there. Well, you know, where do you need the presence of God to come in and interact and bring change and change the atmosphere? Where do you need that? He, he's willing. When we worship, it brings his manifest presence and he changes the atmosphere. Third point, God's presence brings judgment. I'm not a doom and gloom guy, so don't turn me off. Watch. Psalms 22 and 3. But you are holy, talking to God, enthroned in the praises of Israel. You, you, you've heard us say God inhabits the praises of his people. That's what he's saying. You're holy and, and you're enthroned. You, you look for that place to come in and land. And when we praise you, and that's where you come. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, delivered them. They cried to you and, you were, and, and were delivered and you trusted. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. When we begin to worship God, remember he's looking and seeking. What's he looking and seeking for? A place to land. Why does he want to come and land? He wants to create a throne or a place for judgment. Now, before you stop breathing altogether, if you are a believer, if you are born again, okay, if Jesus is Lord of your life, you never have to worry about the judgment of God because you're under the blood of Jesus. God has no anger for us. He, he has poured all of that out on the cross. So when God comes to sit on his throne, trying to find a place to land in our lives, here's what he's doing. He's coming to hand out judgment on the enemy on your behalf. I, I, I think that's really good and positive and something you should really maybe think about being excited about. If you're living in a place where you need victory, how would you like for the creator of the universe to come sit and judge over your situation? Oh, you're waiting on a lawyer. You're waiting on the government. You're waiting on them to settle this. You're waiting on that. Why not have the creator of the universe come and sit at your table with you and rule over your situation? See, that's our heritage. That's the kind of victory we're to walk in. And, 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 and you see, that's what worship does. It creates the throne where the king of the universe can sit down in my circumstances. And, and listen, to me, other than salvation, that's probably the most incredible blessing we could ever ask for. And, 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 we, and, we, and you see, here's what we get. We're believers. We get love and acceptance and grace and mercy. And then God comes and, he, and he's going to put his wrath against our spiritual enemies. So he wants us to be victorious and not constantly be defeated. And, and, and if we understand his principles about worship, he comes, he dwells, and he builds his throne. So when the enemies come, and listen, they come, they're going to come back. I, I mentioned about being more than a conqueror. That's knowing that you whipped him this time and you got enough to whip him the next time he comes. You've got enough. Why? Because you understand that it's really not you, but it's the spirit and the power of the Lord that's abiding in you. You know, I, I like to think of it like this. You, some of you guys won't understand this because you're young, but some of you guys will because you're older. Um, but like in school, we, we had these guys we hung out with. You know, we had a group we hung out with, you know, five, six, eight of us. You, you know, your posse kind of thing, you know. I know they have different names now, peeps and whatever, whatever. But, you know, you know if, you, if you were your little group, you're pretty bold. You know, you'd stand up. They had your back. If you didn't have your little posse with you, you were careful what you said, right? So, so understand, God's the same way. 
He's your eternal posse. He's got your back. He's got your back when you don't deserve it. He's got your back when you, when you couldn't earn it. He's got your back when you didn't even know he had your back. He's got your back. I'm telling you, we were created to be victorious. And it's not some mind over matter or some ideal. It is the presence of the living God resting and taking a throne in my life so I can be victorious over the enemy because he wants to stop me. You, you're okay. Fourth point. God's presence brings deliverance. Brings deliverance. Now, to show you this, I want to read out of Revelation chapter 19. Uh, this is going to be the, the, the most incredible worship experience in the history of man. It's going to take place in heaven. And John is reciting, he's seeing this and he's writing it down. What's going to happen? And here's what he says. Starting in verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the saints. He's talking to the church. Praise our God, all you his servants, all those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He's saying, hey, come on and, 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 and praise and come on and worship God. And then he starts hearing this voice, these voices coming. In verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made himself ready. You know who the wife is, right? It's, it's the church, okay? We're, the church, the believers make up the church, not a denomination, but the believers make up the church. And we're going to marry Jesus at this great marriage supper of the Lamb. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. That's the church. Created in, uh, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write. John, write this down. You're paying it. Quit, pay attention. I want you to write this down. Blessed are those who call to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, see that you don't do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me. I want you to worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So here's what John saw in heaven. This great wedding where the church comes together and we're all engaged with God and we're married and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then the greatest worship of all mankind takes place all over heaven, everywhere. And, and, and they're standing, they're pouring out their adoration to God. But see, right now, the groom's not there. How do you get the groom to show up? Worship. When you worship, Jesus shows up. In this heavenly atmosphere, they, the bride stands up and begins to worship. Guess who shows up? Verse 11. And now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him called Faithful and True, and in the righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on them that no one knew it but himself. And he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, that's the church, the believers, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he could strike the nations, the enemies. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe his, and on his thigh a name written. What's that name? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. What is it? Jesus. 
I, I think you need to say it one more time. What's that name? Our eternal occupation when we get to heaven will be to worship our God. Pour out adoration, sing out to him. And here's what he wants you to know. There are times right now where I need to be that warm, cuddly God to you. It's kind of like the father figure and the grandfather and, you know, you've got that embrace. But I want you to know that for victory until you get here, my son will still show up as king of kings and lord of lords. And he will bring judgment against the spirits and the enemies that stand against you. See, here's what the enemy wants you to do. The enemy wants you to get things. He wants the things to come against you, get you in a mess. He wants you to get worried and, fret and, and fretting and stressing. And he wants you to sit around and mope about your circumstances. He wants you to gripe and complain and be negative and fuss and moan and groan. And you see, when you do that, you're going to get whipped. When you do that, you're not going to walk in victory. And listen, we've all done that. We know what that gets us, but all of us haven't tried the opposite. We haven't tried in the middle of a circumstance that looks bad and negative. We just start giving thanks and adoration to a God. Why? Because he's looking for those who are going to give it in those kind of circumstances. And when he sees them, he's going to show up with his presence. And when he shows up with his presence, he's going to set up a place that he can judge your enemy. Why? So he can defeat your enemy on this earth so that you can finish and complete what he's called you to finish and complete. If you could be honest with yourself, what is the Holy Spirit pointing out in your life that you need victory in? And the enemy will lie to you and with guilt and condemnation and say, no, 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 you can never have victory over that. You, you did this. You said that. You just got to live with it, buddy. That's a lie. That's a lie. But we believe it because we haven't experienced the presence, the manifest presence of God. What area of your life do you need God to come in and kiss? Do you realize that one kiss from God can change your circumstance in an instant? One touch from God, one word from God. And yet, what do we do? We go through the form and we live in a world that's spiritually abandoned God and everybody wants to argue about this and that and we've abandoned God and we're going through the form and some of us even have our idols over here and we're going through the form and, and, and we're stiff-necked against God and this and that. It's because we haven't encountered the presence of God. One encounter with the presence of God, it changes all the dynamics in your life and you realize, oh my goodness, what have I been missing but when you listen to tradition and you listen to religion and you listen to, to habits and forms that we create as man, we miss out on what God has for us. And God's desire is for you to come into his salvation and to be a believer. And his desire as a believer, he wants you victorious. He doesn't want his children beat and defeated and walking around with their tail tucked. But what's the key? The key is to know how to worship and enter into his presence.